Um, this year, this year is dedicated in uh, loving memory of Yosef Herzal on the occasion of his eleventh Yotzeit. Lilui Nishmat Yosef Tuvia Zal Ben Yisrael Aryeh Yibodeh Lechayim Aruki. Yosef was a student of mine in yeshiva, and. Uh, He was actually a rather remarkable young man. I got to know him well because he used to, he didn't live in the yeshiva. He lived in Yerushalayim. Yeshiva was in Ephraim. And uh, Thursday nights when I gave uh, a parashashir late at night, I would drive him home. And that was our time, you know, the time that we were able to communicate with each other. Uh, he was uh, remarkable because young people usually go to yeshiva because they think it's the right thing to do or because they have nothing else to do. Uh, he had a very specific reason for going to yeshiva. I mean, of course, he was brought up in an Orthodox home, but and he went to uh, he studied Torah as a young person. Nevertheless, he spent a year. He spent a year in, uh, in if when we move we'll be able to avoid the noise as well. Apparently there's no other way. So, uh, after college, after graduating college, he went to Europe and worked for the Joint Distribution Committee and he knew that that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to help the Jewish people. And he understood that in order to help the Jewish people, it was not good enough to have been a fair student in uh, a day school in uh, Flatbush or New Jersey. So he decided to come to Israel and to deepen that connection that he would need with the Torah, which he felt uh, was the message, the message that you had to bring to the Jewish communities around the world. So we were... Uh, terribly uh, struck by the fact of his death at an untimely time. And uh, we console ourselves with the fact that uh, the Jewish people are producing uh, leadership, leadership-oriented people. Yosef Hirsch was certainly one of them. Okay, we're going to talk about Babit Bar. What? You know, whatever. He was, uh, he had difficulties. Um, I want to talk about Bamidbar. The, the book of Bamidbar and the parasha of Bamidbar. In order to talk about it, I remind you, I remind you of the fact that at the beginning of the Torah, Rashi introduces us to a quandary that we really have. There's a difficulty in solving it, even though Rashi offers a solution. The question that Rashi asks, based on a medrash, it's not Rashi's original question, but Rashi copied it out of the earlier medrash, and yet you understand that Rashi was really our teacher. Rashi taught us Chumash, and we would never have known this medrash without Rashi. With Rashi, everybody knows the medrash. The medrash was... Why start the Torah from Breshit? Why not start the Torah from 
a mitzvah. At the first mitzvah to Klal Yisrael, the first mitzvah that the Jewish people received was Achodesh Azelachem. When they left Egypt, right, the beginning of Shemot, Achodesh Baruch told Moshe Rabbeinu that they had an obligation to, uh, to sanctify the new moon. New moon. That's what it says. So Rashi says this. Why start the Torah with Breshit? I, I don't learn anything that I'm supposed to do. There's nothing that isn't the essence of the Torah, the mitzvot. So the Torah should have started from the mitzvot. Now Rashi doesn't mention, and the Medrash doesn't mention, so what would I do with Breshit? Where would I put it? Where would it go? Or do I need it at all? Uh, etc. So the Rashi leaves us with this impression, with the impression that Breshit, that the stories of Breshit, uh, the book of Breshit, is of secondary or tertiary importance. Now, the Ramban doesn't like that. The Ramban, I mean, Rashi's answer, Rashi's answer is... Um, well, let me get to Rashi's answer. Rashi's answer is that when the nations of the world come and say, you stole Eretz Israel, this is not a political advertisement. When the nations of the world come and they say, you stole Eretz Israel, what, what, what's their argument? Their argument is that after all, who put the seven nations in Eretz Kenan? Wasn't that God? And weren't they there before Yehoshua bin Nun captured the land? That's the argument. Now, you can't beat that argument. I mean, it's amazing to me, it's always amazing to me that the, uh, that the Arabs don't use it. But you can't beat it. And Rashi admitted that you can't beat it. So he said the reason that you need the stories of Rashid is to show that even something that God does in this world may not be fixed or permanent, may be changeable. And so, yes, it's true that the seven nations of weren't Canaan before Am Yisrael got to Canaan, but, but, so what? That's what, that's what Breshit is about. Breshit teaches us, Breshit teaches us that God may change things. Nothing stays the way it is, and since the seven nations deserve to be punished, deserve to be kicked out, right, that's why one of the reasons that's given that the Jews had to wait the 400 years, right, remember 400 years, Avramavino, 400 years before you come back there, it's Canaan. What were they waiting for? Like in the 400 years, they were waiting for the Avon, for the transgressions of the Canaanites of the Amori, to be such that they would deserve to be kicked out. So that means that according to Rashi, the principle of Sakharva Onesh overrides the fact that God made it possible. After God made this is this is true about everything. Everything that we learned, that, that even though God said, God said, you seven nations, you're here, this is your home, Eretz Canaan, there's a, but we have to understand that that is, can be overridden by principles of Sakharva Onish, rewarding punishment, just as, just as eventually it's overridden for us, right? 
we were kicked out of Eretz Kinaan slowly but surely. Right? First the ten tribes, then the, the two tribes, another, 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 right? The destruction of the second temple, right? Total, total withdrawal from Eretz Kinaan. So even though there is no doubt, we have no doubt that God put us there, there is also no God that God took us out of there. And that the reward and punishment principle wins. It's, it's, it beats the fact that God's put us there. So if we get back to the book of Breshit, the trouble with Rashi's explanation is that there's a lot of chapters to just say Sacharva Onesh wins. We still have this problem. We have this problem with the kind of amount of material that is in the book of Breshit to teach us about Sacharva Onesh. Because we know that uh, we like where the Torah is, uh, is economical in its presentation and explains things this is also Rashi explains things to us in a very simple straightforward way without meandering about so uh, uh, the Ramban in the beginning of Breshit right the first Pasuk in Breshit the Ramban takes issue with Rashi and he says he doesn't like the question he says what do you mean Breshit Breshit's got a lot of important stuff in it. It teaches you about Emunah. It teaches you about faith, the Abraham, and Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and Yosef. And before that, even Noah, Adam Arishon, Cain and Hevel. These are important things for the Rambam. Now, why they are important, why they are so important, the Rambam explains elsewhere in his introduction to the Torah, to his commentary on the Torah, and we won't get into that right now. But you know that there's a difference of opinion. Rashi accepts the question in the Tankuma, which was, what's so important about Breshit? Why does the Torah start from Breshit? He gives some sort of an answer. And the Ramban doesn't like the question. He says, everybody, I mean, everybody can see that Breshit is of ultimate importance. So this brings us to the parasha of Bamidbar. Bamidbar. If you look at the sheet, at the second half of the sheet, Vayukol pekudei b'nei Yisrael v'eit avotav v'ben esrim shana v'mala kol yotzei tzavah v'Yisrael. So you know that in the book, in the, in the parasha of Bamidbar, HaKadosh Baruch Hu instructs Moshe Rabbeinu to count to count all the people that are there tribe by tribe by tribe and Moshe Rabbeinu does that he counts all the, tr- the people in all the tribes and the Torah records this how many people were there in the tribe of Reuven how many in the tribe of Shema etc it's all recorded in the Torah and that record ends, right? The about all those who go out into the army. So we understand why it was that Moshe Rabbeinu thought they had to know how many people there were in the in the nation of Israel. 
Because after all, they had to defend themselves, and they were uh, building an army, and the army you had to know how many people are in the army, right? That's uh, we know that now from the arguments in the government, <coughs> because you have to know how many uniforms to buy, and you have to know how much food to order, and you have to you have to know all these things. You have to know how many there are. The question, of course, is why do I have to know that? I mean, what difference does it make to me how many able-bodied soldiers were available to Moshe and Aaron in the desert? And if I have to have a, some awareness of it, why couldn't the Torah just say, and this is how many there were? Why do you have to count up tribe by tribe by tribe? I mean, what difference does it make how many there were in one tribe and how many in another tribe? That I don't understand. I mean, as a, as a parenthetic remark, I would say, that in the parasha of Pinchas, right, also one of the parashiot in Bamidbar, the people are counted again. But there, the purpose is to know how to divide up the land of Eretz Kinan when they go in and they capture it. Because the people they counted, each of them would be, uh, would inherit a certain amount of the land of Eretz Yisrael, you know, the number of acres or dunamim uh, divided by the number of families. So you have to know how many families there were in order to divide up the land properly. Okay. But this, this parasha, parashat Bamidbar, which teaches us how many people there were in order to know how big the army was, or, as I said before, how much logistic backup the army would need in order to fight a battle. I mean, why do I have to know that? Why do I have to know that? And so to hammer this point home, let's look at the Ramban. Let's look at the Ramban, which is right on this, uh, on this page, the second, the middle of the page. By you call Pekudei B'nei Yisrael Beit Avotam, call Yotzei Tzavav Yisrael. He says, it was important for the Torah to give you the summary. 600,000. There were 600,000. After, the Torah told us how many people there were in Ruvain and Shimon and Levi and Yehuda, right? Each of them. So he says, because that was the command. The command to Moshe and Aaron was that they should know how many are each tribe and how many are there altogether. This is a, a Ramban idea. This is a Ramban idea that, that B'nai Yisrael B'nai Yisrael had to establish the idea of malchut, of kingship. I mean, they were slaves. They were slaves for a long time. And certainly the idea of malchut, of kingship, is dramatically opposed to... It's dramatically opposed to slavery. I mean, slaves don't have kings. So the Ramban says that along the way to Eretz Yisrael, where eventually they would appoint a king, 
and the first king of Eretz Yisrael was Shaul HaMelech, right? Saul, King Saul. <coughs> but they had to know what kingship was. And one of Moshe Rabbeinu's jobs was to teach B'nai Yisrael what it means to have a king. Even though Moshe Rabbeinu maybe was not a king, because he didn't pass kingship down to his children, but he was, I would say, the acting king. He was the king pro tem of, uh, of B'nai Yisrael. So he did kingly things. So the Rabban says, one of the things that kings do is that they, uh, they count the people that they have. But the Ramban doesn't give in. He says, okay, it's a good thing to do. But why is it a mitzvah? Why did God command Moshe Rabbeinu to count the people? After all, that puts it in a special category. And he says, Okay. I mean, here you have, it's like a little difficult. There were the Galim, right? The Galim of flags. Each Shevet had a flag. And the flag enabled the people of the Shevet to collect around it. So he said, well, in order to have clarity about who's in this Shevet and who's in that Shevet, well, you had to have, you had to have uh, uh, these, these banners, these flags. And he says, And the Rabban then goes on and says, I still can't understand why Moshe Rabbeinu had to do this. <laughs> so the Ramban says, you know, maybe, uh, maybe it's because when they came to Mitzrayim, there were only 70. And now there are hundreds of thousands. So it reminds you of the chesed of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So that's a good idea. But if that was the point of counting, Moshe Rabbeinu should have done it on his own. You have to wait for a command from God. To, and, and the Ramban is saying this, but he doesn't really think that it's correct. He says, I'm sorry, another line. If you look carefully in the Torah, you'll see that every time there's a plague and a lot of people die, God counts them. God counts them again. That that God is as strength against the the nation. So the Ramban says, 
And that's what the Chachamim meant when they say, well, God counts them all the time because he loves them. Or Chiba, whatever the word Chiba may mean. Differentiated from Ahava. Ahava means to love. And Chiba means to like, I guess. So, I don't know exactly what it means. It's a subject of, of uh, it's a good subject to think about. Counting is like life giving. So he says, well, anyway, if Moshe and Aaron counted B'nai Yisrael, so they sort of pointed their finger at each person. And you're one, you're two, you're ten, you're thirty. Right? They pointed the finger. So just that, just pointing their finger... At, at individuals, at all these tribes, was great merit. Merit for the people in the tribe. So he goes through goes through a variety of, uh, of possibilities. It's like with the Ramban, is sort of standing aghast at uh, what's going on. I mean, the whole parasha in the Torah, the parasha of Babidbar, is about counting B'nai Yisrael. And what is counting B'nai Yisrael about? Why did Moshe Rabbeinu have to do it? If it was pragmatic, then why would it be a mitzvah? Why would God have to direct Moshe Rabbeinu to do it? And so you might say that uh, since God directed Moshe Rabbeinu, then Moshe Rabbeinu counted. So the counting somehow was a schut, was a merit for B'nai Yisrael. Although, I can't say I fully understand that. I can't say that I fully understand it. So in order to get some clarification, let's look at the Ramban's introduction to the book of Bamidbar. You see the, uh, the top of the page? Top of the page is the Ramban's introduction to the book of Bamidbar, which is divided into two parts. The first part is first, and the second part is second. So the first part, in the first part, the Ramban says this. Achar shebe'er Torata Korbanot, Torata Korbanot, right, the Torah of all the sacrifices, that's the book of Ayikra. Right, that's the book of Ayikra. Sefer Shlishi, there are some mitzvot that are connected to Oel Moed, to the Mishkan. And so those mitzvot, like after the mitzvot of the Korbanot, like what you do in the Mishkan, there are certain mitzvot that are connected to Oel Moed, so he, he's, he's trying to say that the book of Bamidbar follows naturally from the book of Ayikra. Ayikra is basically about the Beit HaMikdash, Tumah B'Tarah, things that are mutter, things that are also, you know, it's kind of a depressing book. And the beginning of Bamidbar is a continuation 
of the same depression. He says if there's Christ here to Mount the Mikdash, and the, and the Torah already talks about those things that will be prohibited forever like Tamei and Beit HaMikdash somebody who's Tamei can't go into the Beit HaMikdash now the Torah says you have to put a uh, like a, a fence around the Mishkan you can't go wherever you want to go uh, this is one of the Ramban's theories that Har Sinai passed over into the Mishkan which is why according to the Ramban explained by the Rabbeinu B'chaya in Shemot we don't have a holiday uh, of going back of going back to uh, to Har Sinai I mean, if you would think that the people who can make a holiday out of going to see Rav Nachman on Rosh Hashanah and going to see Rav Shimon on Lagba Omer, I mean, Lagba Omer is a pretty big affair today, these days. So, well, how come we didn't make a holiday out of going to Ar Sinai? That would have been a good thing, no? You could become a Har Sinai tour guide, and then we Har Sinai Egged buses. It would be, it would be uh, an obvious thing, but the Rabban says, the Rabban is of the opinion that Har Sinai doesn't exist. That whatever Har Sinai was, we were instructed to take it with us and to make it into the Mikdash. The Mikdash, the Mishkan, that became Har Sinai, so there's nothing to go back to. There is no Har Sinai, according to the Rabban. He says, Kashar Ma'ashav, Kisachol Yisachel. If you come too close to Har Sinai, you're going to get smashed. And the same thing is true about the Beit HaMikdash. You can't just walk into the Beit HaMikdash in all kinds of conditions. Uh, and similarly, when you move the Mishkan from one place to another, you have to turn your back when you cover up the Aaron Kodesh, and then only then you're allowed to 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 move it. The Torah says this several times. How will they watch over the Mishkan? The Kelav and its vessels? How will they Okay, so here's the Ramban. The Ramban asks the question, what is the book of Bamidbar about? And he sees that in the beginning of the book of Bamidbar, there's a lot of material about the Mishkan, the tabernacle, the Beit HaMikdash. So really, he doesn't understand, he doesn't explain why it's not in the book of Ayikra. That's all part of Ayikra. So he says, okay, 
there's a few things left over. The Rabban could put up with that. But if there's left over, so Baruch told, told the Moshe Rabbeinu to put it in the next book. Now, as you know, that book, the book of Bamidbar, was supposed to be the end of the Torah. The end. Because the book of Bamidbar was the book which should have said, and B'nai Yisrael entered the land of Canaan. But they didn't enter the land of Canaan. Right? They said Miraglim. Again, remember the Parshiyot of Madrid, remember Bamidbar, Naso, Falotcha, and then Shlach. So Shlach is the end of Jewish history. Because at, at that time they should have gone into Eretz Canaan. That time. Instead they had Miraglim. And the Miraglim said what they said, the people said what they said, and it didn't happen. So the rest of the book of Bamidbar, the rest of the book of Bamidbar, from Shlach until the end of the book of Bamidbar, is from our understanding a little bit unexpected. Like Bilah, unexpected. Korach, unexpected. They had all been in Eretz Israel. They said, this would never have happened. They wouldn't have had the book of Bamidbar. So the Ramban says, the Ramban says the book of Bamidbar starts out with things that are left over from the book of Ayikra. So I say, okay, I understand that. I don't know why. Why he couldn't put it in Ayikra. I don't know, but I get to make some sort of a distinction, as he does. He says, the book of Ayikra is about Korbanot. And the book of Bamidbar is about the rules of the Mishkan. Okay, you have some kind of rationale for keeping them, keeping these two, uh, these two groups of information separate. But why? Why uh, uh, is it, is, what am I going to say about the rest of Bamidbar? What am I going to say about what happens after that? So, along comes the Rambat. And here we are. It's one, two, three, four. Four lines from the bottom. Uh, five words from the end. So the Ramban comes up with an idea that is absolutely breathtaking, mind-boggling, unlikely. This is what he says. He says, a mitzvah sha'ah is a mitzvah that only works for a short period of time. And so we know that even though even though Nebiyim can't add anything to the Torah, even if a, there's a prophet who is a, an accepted prophet and, and, and has led the Jewish people, but if he says something against the Torah or something that's different than the Torah, he is determined to be an apostate. Yeah, a prophet. A real prophet who has proven his connection to God. He can be ruled an apostate. If he, de- if he denies what the Torah says and insists on some other, some other path. That's called, and he's called in the V, Sheker. However, Hora'at Sha'a, Hora'at Sha'a, which is no, near Haifa, 
decided that it was important to give a sacrifice to prove to the people that he represented God and not the prophets of Baal. They did not represent God. Even though it was forbidden from the Torah to sacrifice outside of Yerushalayim once Yerushalayim had been built, nevertheless, Eliyahu taught us this principle of Horat You could sometimes do something against what the Torah wants if it's to deal with a particular problem which is so great, such a great problem that, that you know that God will be on your side. And that's what Eliyahu did at Har HaKarmel. So along comes the Rabban and he says, what's special about the book of Bamidbar? He said, mitzvot sha'ah. Mitzvot that are not going to be continued forever. Which we're not going to have to do uh, uh, forever. But mitzvot that we have to do right now. Right now because something happened and, and that has to be changed. So you remember Korach? You remember the story of Korach? And the punishment of Korach was that they all took these censors with a uh, Ketoret, uh, right? An incense sacrifice. And they were struck down. They were struck down. But, but who told them to do that? Moshe Rabbeinu told them to do that, even though it was against what was written in the Torah. Against. And so when the Rabban said, when the Rabban said, what the Rabban is saying is, what the Rabban is saying is that things changed after, after the, uh, the Miraglim. Right, the Miraglim, the Miraglim were the ones who changed the relationship between B'nai Yisrael and the Torah. That established new kinds of boundaries, new kinds of, new kinds of relationships. And so, and so there was suddenly a possibility after the Miraglim, Right, and the, the Jews were being punished with the 38 years sojourn in the desert. So after the Miraglim, there was, uh, everything was kind of unraveling. Korach, Bilam, things unraveled. People didn't understand about prophecy, about Moshe Rabbeinu. Everything was called into question. It wasn't just... Eretz Yisrael that was called into question. But the leadership of Moshe Rabbeinu, remember the Ramban said Malchus, that Moshe Rabbeinu lost control. He lost control. He was unable to present himself as Malchus, as kingship for B'nai Yisrael. And therefore, Korach did what Korach did. And therefore, Bolak and Bilam did what they did. If they were really frightened of Moshe Rabbeinu and of Bilam, none of that would have happened. So that when the Rabban says that the rest of Bamidbar contains mitzvot sha'ah, he doesn't mean that it's accidentally mitzvot sha'ah. He means it's just like Eliyahu Navi. Since authority was no longer in place. Al-Yawanabi could not speak to the people and say, I am the only true prophet, therefore follow me. Because the people were not willing to follow him. They were following the Nevi'eh Abal, the, the prophets of Baal. So, mitzvot 
are the mitzvot that were necessary in order to bring B'nai Yisrael back to an even keel, being led by Moshe Rabbeinu towards Eretz Yisrael. The tragedy, the tragedy of the Meraglim, the tragedy of Meraglim was not just a one-time thing that they, they, uh, they, they misstepped and then they were able, and so they were punished 38 years wandering around. No, no. They misstepped with the Meraglim because they had lost their bearings. They no longer understood who the king was. They no longer understood what Torah direction was. And to bring them back, to bring them back to the, the place where they had to be, you had to have Hora'at Sha'ah. You had to have Mitzvah Sha'ah, as the Rabban, as the Rabban said. So that the counting, the counting of B'nai Yisrael, the counting of B'nai Yisrael, Allah comes to the Rabban and says this odd thing. He says, kings count. Kings like to know how many people they have, how many supporters they have, how many people are in their, in their camp. So the kings, the king that's being referred to, of course, is Moshe Rabbeinu. And the Meraglin, the Chait of Meraglin, was the Chait, again, the ultimate Chait against Moshe Rabbeinu. Right, the ultimate chayt against Moshe Rabbein. <coughs> and so God commanded him. God commanded him to malchut, to do what melachim do, and that is to count the people. Because you know that counting is an act of violence. It's an act of, of, of uh, possession. You don't count things that are not yours. You know, people that take the money out of their wallet and they count it. You know, there are people like that. Even though today, you could actually count the number of credit cards as an alternative. But but when you have something, when you have something that's very valuable and you're very proud of having it, well, you can't really keep your hands away from it. You want to look at it. And that's what Chazal said. Chazal said about uh, Yaakov and Yosef that they were... It was like, like life uh, 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 shined the jewels, like the difficulties made the person. And this is something that is true. This is true about counting. You count them, as the Ramban says, you count them because you love them. I mean, chibah, love. It's something you can get attached to. You get attached to the thing that you're counting. So according to the according to the Ramban, I mean the parish of Bamidbar is an introduction to the Bamidbar, to the difficulties in the desert. And that introduction is about B'nai Yisrael losing its way. And the thirty-eight years in the desert were not just the punishment for doing a particular act, but it was an attempt to reconstitute B'nai Yisrael, to place them again where they should be, to take them away from their uh, uh, difficult, from their difficult times, and to replace them with the old B'nai Yisrael, led by Moshe Rabbeinu, leaving the tribe. And that's uh, like you know these answers to these regular questions come up all the time. Remember, I asked, I once asked why Moshe Rabbeinu is not mentioned in the Haggadah. Moshe did not mention the Haggadah. So I think it's because Moshe Rabbeinu didn't really leave Mitzrayim. 
in the way that everybody else left Mitzrayim, because everybody else, everybody else was sl- a slave, and then was freed. Moshe Rabbeinu was never a slave, and therefore, he's the only one who did not really participate in Yitziat Mitzrayim. So when I think of Yitziat Mitzrayim and the people who left, and I think of myself somehow as being part of that, I don't think of Moshe Rabbeinu. So what was Moshe Rabbeinu's job, so to speak? What was Moshe Rabbeinu doing? And what were you needing for? Why couldn't God just send some, you know, buy a body with a note to, uh, to uh, uh, Paro and say, this is it, we're leaving. And what do you need Moshe Rabbeinu for? <coughs> According to the Ramban, Moshe Rabbeinu represented Malchus. And Malchus is another way. <coughs> it's very annoying when you do that. Well, Malchus, Malchus means that, that they're a nation. That's what Malchus is. Like today you would say, you know, the state of Israel should be Jewish and democratic. No one is too obsessed by the idea that those two words are somewhat contradictory in different kinds of situations. But again, I say we don't talk about politics. Uh, so to be a nation in the eyes of the Ramban, you needed a king. You needed a king, and that's partially the reason when the Jews came to Shmuel and Avi, to Samuel, the prophet, and said, give us a king, and Shmuel and Avi, who was a smart guy and a reputable prophet, said to them, no, 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 it's a mistake. You don't want a king. He's just going to make you miserable. Shmuel and Avi lost and the people won. People wanted the king won. And the reason for that is that kingship equals a nation in those days. Today, it would be a little bit difficult, even though there are here and there, there are kings hanging around that provide a lot of good information for the social columns and newspapers. But in those days, a nation had a king. And while there were disadvantages to having a central authority, and while there were disadvantages to having a central uh, armed forces, there was no other way to be a king except to have, to be a nation except to have a king. So Moshe Rabbeinu led B'nai Yisrael, not out of Mitzrayim, but led B'nai Yisrael into nationhood. He made them. He made them into a nation because he was their, he was their king. That broke down at the time of the of the miracle, it broke down. Moshe Rabbein is no longer the king. People spoke to him as though he was another person, a regular person. Korach wanted to undermine him and his brother Aaron. Bilam wanted to curse them into oblivion, which is an act of, of prophecy. So, that's Bamidbar. We're into it. Have a good Shabbos. Yeah, so the uh, Russian says that counting is his sign of love. Mm. All those people that were counted died in the desert. Every one of them, because they all be on the age and they all died in the desert. And they surprised them back. It's kind of like a uh, you know, double edged phenomenon. I mean, you think that, that those two things are contradictory? Well, maybe counting isn't a good idea with God says they count. Okay. We have that tradition as well. We know that's the case. That's why they gave 
machzita shekel. You count the machzita shekel. You didn't count the people. But this counting wasn't counting. No, maybe it wasn't. But uh, this was a tzivui. So a tzivui, a command from God, should be an override even for difficult results.